I don't know why he asked me to do this. Asked you to do what? You asked me to get more treble on the stereo system. Get more treble. Oh. Oh. <laughs> I see you guys are not above cheap gags. I love that. There are too many cartoons, <laughs> but they'll watch them all. The penny chase to the sort of hopefully funny cartoon podcast. Hello out there in podcast land. My name's James Irish. And I'm Pembroke W. Corgi. And welcome once again to the Penny and James Kinda Sorta Hopefully Funny Cartoon Podcast. And we have another special guest on the couch. Yeah, and I'm spread out. I'm enjoying this whole damn thing. Although I like the, the this one pillow is a little bit weird on the embroidery. I'm just saying. That's my head. <laughs> <laughs> but it's so cuddly. How are we doing, fellas? Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Christopher Frank. Hello. Welcome aboard. This is so weird because usually, like, I'm the host and I'm the driver of the, the the conversation and whatnot. So to be somebody else's guest, this is a, I enjoy it. I, I appreciate the invitation, and we're glad to have you. Uh, of course, those of you who are probably regular listeners of the monkey business podcast network will recognize him as the host of the monkey business podcast our flagship and also the bi-weekly dan and chris save the world please we have to tune into those absolutely and we haven't actually saved the world yet so you're still early in the in the uh, the operation as it were so uh so hopefully you'll join us ahead of time and, and you'll be there when we actually figure out how to, it's i have this feeling it's like it's like a george carlin routine there's, there's going to be that ultimate answer to life, the universe, and everything will be plastics. <laughs> so, anyway, so you guys are good. How's things? We're quite good. good. Looking forward to talking about some Star Trek. Star Trek, the animated series. Yes, that's right. Cue the theme music. I said cue. The there, there we go. <laughs> Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the starship Enterprise. Its five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. Perfectly disco of the 70s. Now, those of you who are astute Star Trek fans will know that's not the original theme song. And as with many of the circumstances surrounding this TV series, this specifically this animated series, there was a lot of drama going on. In this case, with the theme song, there was an ongoing feud between theme song composer Alexander Courage and Star Trek creator Gene Roddenberry, because Roddenberry had added lyrics 
to the original theme that I don't think were ever used, and I don't think they're that operatic, ah, uh, and, and all that. Yeah, no. Um, I remember hearing this story. It was it was something so he could... Oh, and my dog's already pissed off at something. Um, let me close the door here. Hang on. Sorry about this, fellas. Sorry. Um, Do not sighting. He had done something to... I don't know if it was to intentionally undermine or just to make sure that there was a, a writing credit or a production credit for the song in his name. I don't remember what it was. I've actually heard the the lyrics. I don't know if you guys have. I have not. I gotta be out there somewhere. This is the wonderful thing about podcasting through my computer. Uh, Star Trek original theme lyrics. I was about to say because I mean it couldn't be too hard to write lyrics if they were. Oh! <laughs> and and they're terrible Does because on your foot, Pemmy. Because <laughs> they're terrible because Gene Roddenberry wrote them himself. So so here we go. You ready, guys? Brace yourselves for this. Ready? Beyond the rim of the starlight, my love is wandering in star flight. I know he'll find star clustered reaches. He'll find love. Love a star woman teaches. And it gets worse from there. <laughs> it's terrible. <laughs> it's it's like it's like a really bad Daniel Steele novel. It's wow. like Dr. Seuss's fever dream. Oh my god, that's a great way to describe it. Absolutely now I, fantastic way. Now I'm more more appreciative of the lady going, oh! <laughs> <laughs> but no, no, the theme of the animated series is is it has the same kind of vibe. You know, vibe. Vibe's yeah. a good word. I mean a little more disco actually, right? Because I made that that joke. Yeah. Um, but it does give you that kind of a feel. And I think I like that about the whole animated series. I don't want to jump too hard, far ahead of your, your bullet points. If you have something you wanted to discuss in person and in, in the course of the conversation, James, but well, we're, we're still in the pre-production phase of it. Good deal. And, you know, originally filmation, uh, head Lou Scheimer and, uh, his counterpart, whose name escapes me. Hal Sutherland or Hal Sutherland. Uh, thank you. Mm-hmm. They're original oh, ideas. Either that or Norm Prescott. So, okay, well, one of the two. <laughs> the, the original filmation idea for a Star Trek animated series was going to not be a follow-up, but a spin-off, mm-hmm. which would have uh, launched contemporaneous with Star Trek's third season. They wanted to uh, have the the main cast teaching the next generation of Starfleet cadets, and it was going to ha- be an educational show of sorts. Probably not anything uh, PBS worthy, but still a little more uh, science and nature and that sort of thing centric oh. than what was going on television at the time. This would have been oh. the era of Wacky Races, Scooby Doo, and so right, on. Right. I, I just got this image now of like Star Trek, except it does the lessons at the end like He Man does. So. And then I remember that lesson that we got from She-Ra, and I don't think I, Kirk would be have any right to give us that lesson. Oh, good heavens, no. No no lessons about the bad touch. Especially <laughs> not from Captain Kirk. <laughs> uh. But this obviously never launched. In mm-hmm. fact, uh, any attempt at a Star Trek animated series was waylaid, due to issues between Paramount and Gene Roddenberry Mm, until a few years later. Mm -hmm. But they were able to actually get a lot of the original staff 
and and crew of, of the show. DC Fontana, who was the script editor of the original series, was brought mm-hmm. in to be this series story editor and associate producer. And they got a bunch of the original writers. We're going to see at least one of them today. And they got the majority of the original cast, but it was a struggle getting to that point. The original plan, in keeping with Filmation's insistence on getting as many voices out of as few voice actors as possible, they were going to lean heavily on James Duhan and Majel Barrett. Yeah. For the majority of the voices that weren't Kirk, Spock, and Bones, which is, of course, William Shatner, Leonard Nimoy, and DeForest Kelly, respectively. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were actually going to recap, have uh, Duhan and uh, Majel uh, be like, the, do the voices for Uhura and Sulu. So that they wouldn't have to hire, you know, two more actors. Right. But, and, but, and you can detect that throughout the course. I mean, I only watched a couple of episodes, but I do remember seeing the series when I was younger. And, you know, one of those things you pick up, especially in our line of work, the three of us, when we're so used to being around voice actors and actors in general, you know, you can hear James doing the, the tenor of his voice behind so many different characters throughout the course of each episode. Like the one we're going to focus on, well, one of the ones we're going to focus on today the serpent one, you know, you, you, I hear him, uh, you know, behind the navigator, behind the actual, you know, the antagonist, you know, there's a whole bunch of stuff going on. I'm like, oh my God, this James doing, I didn't know he was such a quote unquote accomplished voice actor. Yeah. He's also the three armed uh, guy they have on the ship that you see from time to time. So, right. Yep. That would be Lieutenant uh, Eric's. Yeah. Who mm-hmm. is an Edosian. Edosian. Is that the name of that one? That's cool. That's some trivia there. Yeah. And uh, Majel Barrett performed a character we did not see in the episodes, uh, Lieutenant Mares, a female Caitlin or Cation, Cation, yeah, who would sometimes yeah. stand in for Uhura as communications officer, and she may have been the Chitara of her era. Mm-hmm. And I may or may not have had a crush on her when I was a kid. So. Well, again, again, making her the Chitara of her era. Right, exactly. exactly. She was the cat girl before that was the thing. Cat girl before anime came and did that. Maybe she was an inspiration for it. Could be. You know, I mean, that'd be something to look into to see what kind of timing there was. You know, you bring up an interesting point, Pemi. Um, You know, because I wonder, I really, anime has always been my weak spot. I've always been very upfront with it since the beginning of FC3 and and, and all of our podcasts and stuff. So I don't know a lot of the history of it. I don't know if if it doesn't go before 1970 or if it's, you know, is there anime of the 60s or something like that. So I think you bring up an interesting point to see what characters inspired what, you know. That is an um, interesting idea. That might be another podcast in and of itself is talking about the history of anime. So we can actually teach me what the hell this is all about for a change. Oh. Well, we do have some some uh, earlier anime stuff in the pipeline. Uh, Lupin the Third comes to mind. Uh, Ranma mm-hmm. One Half, uh, Bubblegum Crisis, Speed Racer, which is one of those predecessing animes from the 60s. Speed so, Racer okay. is so great because Speed Racer is so freaking nuts. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Speed Racer's bonkers. The movie's even crazier. I actually like that movie. You know, it has its it has its strong suits. It has its moments, and you know, it has Christina Ricci, and that's never a bad thing in my book. I I, I think John Goodman as Pops Racer is the best casting I've ever seen. But I agree. <laughs> um, but so yeah, back on the, track. 
<laughs> but yeah, I'm the sorry. only the only I was just gonna say the only reason uh George Takai and uh Nicole Nichelle's got their uh roles of as uh Sulu and Yohara was because uh Nimoy threatened to not act in the show if they didn't get their uh respective roles. Yeah, Nimoy not only took that stance as a matter of principle because it would be erasing the two minority cast members of the show, but also he was very cognizant of the financial situations of his castmates, mm-hmm. which were not that great around 1973. No, no. But in the meantime, another cast member was eliminated entirely. Pavel Chekhov, originally played by Walter Koenig, would be replaced by the aforementioned Lieutenant Eriks. Right. Did they just not have enough budget for Walter Koenig? Apparently not, but he was not completely forgotten. He, okay. he, he successfully sold a script for the series to Filmation, The Infinite Vulcan. And supposedly the only reason they took that script was to get Nimoy to, <laughs> to, to, to satiate Nimoy because Nimoy was wanting everybody back. So uh-huh. they're like, like, look, we, we, we can't afford caning, but we'll, 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 we'll take the script he gave us. Will that work? <laughs> it's a start. Boy, you that's know, an episode. <laughs> I wonder how much of this stuff would be happening if this was all being produced today rather than in the seventies. You know I mean? We, we're, we're right now, we're in this cusp of a, of a very interesting cultural revolution, you know, where we're, we're fighting, you know, the future is fighting the history right now to see who actually gets to carry us forward. You know, if I may be philosophical and esoteric here during a, 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 an animated series podcast, you know, so and, and Star Trek has always I think I love Star Trek so much because it has always been kind of that flagship point you to what could be if we fixed certain viewpoints, certain aspects. <clears throat> so to have everybody fighting behind the scenes to make sure that there was this representation involved and to make sure that everybody was being treated somewhat fairly, you know, in the seventies is, is a great thing. But I wonder how that conversation would go here in, in 2020, 2021, that kind of a thing. I don't know. I, 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 this, I, I apologize. This is my, my host mode of, you know, going in and I'm coming up with the big questions that really probably don't need to be answered at the moment. <laughs> so. Well, uh, I think the budget constraints are definitely less now than they were back then, so there's at least that. Um, oh, you ain't just whistling Pixie. Yeah. Which we, which we, Because we don't whistle Dixie anymore. <laughs> Thank you for well, that gag, Pemmy. Yeah. <laughs> just whistling Pixie. Yeah. See, though, uh, I was also going to say that, other than, well, also, not just because of there's more, people put more money into animation now than they used to back then, but also because technology has made animation easier now than it was back then. So definitely can afford more expensive voice actors and definitely can afford more than two or three of them as some filmation shows do. Heck filmation has some shows that are all done by one voice actor, like the new or Avengers. Frank of Welker. And, yeah. The new Avengers yeah. of Jekyll and Jekyll is all Frank Welker. It is entirely Frank Welker. Is there a girl in this show? It's still Frank Welker. <laughs> and it's worse because I heard Frank Welker do so many voices that I'll see this female character. And I was like, that's kind of cute design. And then she starts talking. And I'm like, that's Frank Welker. I don't like that. <laughs> so the end effect of bringing on as much of the cast as they could led to a much reduced animation budget, even by filmation standards. 
Mm-hmm. You would wind up with people talking with their hand over their mouth or talking when they're not facing the camera. A lot of recycled animation, a lot of close-ups of the red alert light. Mm-hmm. Well, and, even, and this is on top of even rotoscoping footage of the original cast and the, the Starship Enterprise and, and so on to, to reduce though, costs. Though, and I love Star Trek so much especially the original star trek but i can't argue that star trek may have been the perfect show for filmation to animate anyway since a lot of star trek really is just them sitting around talking about the situation mm-hmm. fair <laughs> it was it's, it's an interesting series though because I mean, it really did i mean i watched i've watched several episodes over time i have only just watched uh one of the ones we're talking about today in particular recently but i do remember it feeling like that really nice slice of, of the original series. And I'm sure that the, you know, having the original actors come by and reprise reprising their parts had a lot to do with it. You know, if it was like Ghostbusters, the movie and the real Ghostbusters, you know, animated cartoon series that had different voices doing the characters, it would have been a different kind of vibe. Yeah. But having William Shatner, Leonard Nimoy, DeForest Kelly, James Dewan, you know, Nichelle Nichols, having all those folks there really kind of helped say, okay. And, and the writing with the, you, you mentioned DC Fontana was a producer to so have her writing the stories really felt like it was going to preserve that, 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 that atmosphere that Star Trek has. So shall we dive into our first episode? Let's talk about an episode. Yay. All right, we are going to open up with one that ties into a past episode of this podcast and mm-hmm. a past episode of the Monkey Business podcast. More Tribbles, More Troubles, yep. directed by Hal Sutherland and written by David Gerald. You probably remember David Gerald for writing the original Tribbles episode and the Deep Space Nine Tribbles episode, which were both discussed on Monkey Business. Yep. And the real Ghostbusters episode, tying things back into what Chris was talking about a moment ago. The whole in the wall gang. <laughs> Amazing how that works. Which also but, had kind of a Tribble-ish plot to it, too. <laughs> but it's like we say on with Flower City Comic Con, it's where everything comes together and it's coming together right here. Uh-huh. Today is an example of that. Lead us on, James. I shall follow thee through this conversation. Well, in true filmation uh, keeping uh, of their uh, traditions and uh, habits, let's say, our story opens up with the Enterprise escorting a pair of robot ships carrying a ton of grain. You can tell right away, if you know your triples, that this is going to be a triple episode without even seeing the title. Exactly. And it's this exact same grain being taken to the exact same planet as last time. Triticulic, I can't say it, but... Uh, Quadratic, uh, I don't remember, yeah. Sherman's uh, Planet. Sherman's Planet, that's the one. Sherman's Planet, and then it was the, the, the particular grain. Is that the, the victim yeah. again? Yeah. Same grain. <laughs> it's just... They, they have to stick to the standboys. <laughs> anyway... Oh, yes. Before we did this, I actually got myself to say it, and now I can't. Darn it. The triticula... I can't do it. Triticalate or something like that. Well, the who's he what's it <laughs> is uh, going to be stalled in its delivery because the Enterprise is intercepted by a Klingon battlecruiser pursuing and attacking a smaller ship. A Federation ship. Yeah. A sh- little, little itty bitty shuttle. Scotty okay. manages to get the captain of said small ship in in transporter before the Klingons can reduce the ship to space dust. 
but he hasn't been able to fully trans transport him over because seemingly the Klingon shot caused the uh, techno babble, techno babble, techno babble <laughs> to where yeah. he can't integrate the uh, the, the uh, member right off the bat. Mm-hmm. And that's when they get hit by a new Klingon uh, weapon, the uh, strobe light effect. <laughs> um, <laughs> this weird ring laser thing that seemingly causes everything, it causes the uh, Enterprise to go into complete stasis and they are unable to move, unable to shoot, unable to do anything. Uh, the, the, the plot writer weapon. Gotcha. Okay. <laughs> yep. Yep. Do X Machina. Yes, the, 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 the weapon that has absolutely no future because we'll never hear from it again, but it's going to be perfect for this particular story. Well, they actually give a pretty good explanation for why we'll never hear about it again, but we'll get to that. Yeah. Yeah, the captain of this Klingon ship is the same captain from The Trouble with Tribbles, Captain Koloth, demanding the small vessel's captain be handed right over to him. Mm-hmm. Except this time voiced by Doohan, if I remember right. <laughs> yeah. Was it Koloth? Duin's playing Koloth? Yep. Yeah. Okay. Now, Man, it was a monster. <laughs> now, Kirk executes a little strategic gambit where the Enterprise uses the robot ships to ram the Klingon bird of prey. His successful bet is that the new weapon drains so much energy it can't be sustained against three targets. Mm-hmm. But the ensuing fracas leaves one of the grain ships damaged. All right, but it, but it does work on getting the Klingons to shove off, for lack of better words, and take off their little stasis beam. And at that point, Scotty is able to start materializing the little shuttle's captain in Walk Kirk and Spock, and cue Star Trek's most consistently weird special effect: William Shatner's acting. <laughs> <laughs> We know that man. <laughs> yeah. I love that line delivery. It's so awkward. It's like, I think we know this man. And it, it's like, well, everybody else is just like, I don't want to think about it. It's like everybody else is like instantly, we know who this is. And Kirk's like, I'm having Alzheimer's. <laughs> yeah, it's Cyrano Jones. Voiced, voiced not by James Doohan, but by... Stanley Adams, who originated the character in the live-action series. Well, that's cool. Yep. They got him and uh, Harry Mudd to reprise their roles for this show, so that's... Oh, cool. yeah. And he's got a plethora of not just any tribbles, but pink tribbles. Well, of course, <laughs> because if you gotta go, you go with the pink. <laughs> if I remember right, uh, the reason they're pink is because <laughs> this is... Uh, uh, Phil May, uh, good old Lou Scheimer, one of the painter, the paint painters he hired for filmation was colorblind. Really? Yes. So you work for an animation house? Because that makes perfect sense to me. I, I'm sure he was very cheap, which would be why Scheimer hired him. <laughs> <clears throat> it's, it's, I'm sorry, I just had this vision of like. The, the Kelsey Grammer movie, Down Periscope, where you have to find the most weirdest crew possible. So, I Because I, I remember reading about that, and it, it seems like that's a big thing. Because uh, I think Lou Schember's logic was, well, they just have to work off the color sheet, so it's not a problem. <laughs> oh, Jesus. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, no, now we got pink tribbles. Now, uh, our dear Cyrano claims that these are genetically modified to not reproduce. I see. And Joan and... also has a glama, the, which he claims to be the tribbles predator. Implying that's how he got off station K-7 so early when Spock estimated it would take him years and years to clear the triples off of that station. The uh, animation of the glomer eating one of the triples is interesting. <laughs> it kind of just sets on the triple, for lack of better words, and it's gone. <laughs> and then, it, it, of course, it cuts away from the actual con- act of consumption, either for the sake of censorship or maintaining the budget take your pick Mm -hmm. oh the quota the quota bones well at least he's neat (laughs) (laughs) Uh, d kelly's timing works perfectly for that line (laughs) uh bones is my favorite star trek character ever oh yeah i i just love how just freaking sarcastic and snarky he is compared to like everybody else on the starship So let me ask you then, quick tangent, Carl Urban's version of Bones, did you like it or not? See. Oh, no, you answered the question just with the sigh. (laughs) No, it was more that I just had to to think about. I I was very not a fan of that second reboot movie. So it was more just I had to think about that series. Um. He's okay. I, I didn't. I don't like him as much as DeForest Kelly, but I didn't feel like excessively upset either. But I may mm-hmm. have been distracted by you know, uh, Cumberbatch being con for some reason. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which is no hate on Cumberbatch, but no, Cumberbatch is an amazing actor. But I, that was the wrong part for him, I believe. Yeah, but well, that's a tangent for another day. I just when you brought up how how much you like Bones, and I remember so many people I've talked to have been like, "Oh, Carl Urban nailed it. It was amazing. He was like focusing on his DeForest Kelly, and he was he was really bringing the character out." And I've heard that so many times. So I always like to ask people when they say, you know, what they think of it. I just want to get that that opinion there. He's he's okay. I didn't have a problem with him. I just uh-huh. I it's just one of those cases where I I don't know if it's just I like DeForest Kelly that much or what, but I I felt like something was missing. Like I felt like. Maybe he needed to be snarkier. I'm not sure. It was like something just felt. But uh, he did good, all things considered. Mm-hmm. I mean. So. And now. And I, and I just have to say one more thing about the reboot. And that's just that. in ref- Since it kind of references an episode of the cartoon. Um, the first time you see Kirk in the first reboot. They play BC Boys Sabotage in the background. Because yeah. Yeah. of William Shatner's infamous. Can't say sabotage right. And. And had an argument that it's you say sabotage, I say sabotage. Is that really behind that that choice? Yes. Are you? Oh my god, that is hilarious! I yeah, my mind is blown right now. I did not know that piece. That's amazing. Yeah. And speaking uh, of sabotage, uh huh. <laughs> that's the reason why Cyrano Jones is being chased by the Klingons. He had sold tr- those triples on one of their planets. Oh God, that's referenced by Worf too. <laughs> yep, and it was, they Clintons were saying he has committed ecological sabotage. Mm. All this has like, added up to multiple local and Federation violations, and Kirk uh-huh. has Jones put in the brig. 
I, I do kind of love that scene though, where it's like, it's like, what did you do? I merely sold the Klingons some tribbles. You sold tribbles to a Klingon planet? I didn't <laughs> know it was a Klingon planet at the time. Tribbles don't like Klingons. That should be your first clue. Tri Klingons like tribbles even less. <laughs> Good old. <laughs> uh, it's like, yeah, I like how Kirk like throws all the things that he's going. They're going to take him, drop him off at jail after they're done. He's like, can we talk about this? And they just animate Kirk walking off. <laughs> <laughs> oh, classic. So cut to McCoy studying one of the Tribbles, finds out that that uh, they're not necessarily reproducing, but they're appearing to get larger and larger. Oh, God, yeah, so I, we need. I, I think his line was, Cyrano Jones is right. These Klingon, these uh, Klingons, these Tribbles don't reproduce. They just get fat. <laughs> Meanwhile, the grain from the damaged ship is all aboard the Enterprise, and all the members of the Blind Boys of Alabama can see uh -huh. what's coming next. Hijinks ensues <laughs> as the Tribbles will. Well, eventually we'll get into the grain, mostly after another Klingon attack. Yeah. Sure enough, the Tribbles are getting bigger as Koloth returns for round two. Oh, wait, we should mention that they had to put uh, all of the grain from one of the robot ships onto the Enterprise. That right. Because that mm -hmm. yeah. that's what you do. <laughs> yeah, the one the one ship was de so damaged its propulsion was shot entirely. But, uh, yeah, Koloth comes in for another attack. But this time doesn't use the beam despite them trying to animate it at one point. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but uh, instead just attacks the other ship and then kind of shuffles off. Yeah, trying to prevent that Kirk's previous trick from working a second time. Which is admittedly uh, reasonable. The now, Kirk, now they have to put that ship into tow, which is less energy the Enterprise has to fight back with. And the ensuing starship phaser battle, when they do eventually fight back, causes the various grain containers all strewn about the hallways and storage of the Enterprise to come loose. Mm -hmm. And the Tribbles just keep getting larger. Larger enough that the Glama are having trouble eating them. And at this point, I have to raise a question of logic. Mm -hmm. Who the heck left this many Tribbles loose? Um, uh, I, will, I will point out that part of the title of the television show we're discussing is animated series. <laughs> you cannot apply logic to that which is labeled animated series. Not but even we our try. <laughs> we do try. And I think that's part of the that's part of the amusement is when we start going, wait, you know, we're 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 veterans at, at analyzing this stuff. We were going to pick this one apart and we're forgetting the basic premise that this was Star Trek for younger folks. Oh, that's the funny thing. Actually, it was uh, part of the point of this show was to make it for all audiences. That was actually part of what Roddenberry and Scheimer agreed on. And actually kind of what happened because the show got canceled because the ratings was coming in, not from the demographic that they wanted. It was coming from like teenagers and young adults instead of, well, kids. Mm -hmm. But And it's valid. That's very valid, too. And, and when we start talking about the other episode, I had a couple of points for that. You know, but then there's, I you know, I, I am guilty of it, of 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 um, 
oh, what is the word I am thinking of? God, I've gotten old. I can't think straight anymore. The, it... Well, think of the curve. Yeah, think of the curve. <laughs> in a curve. Oh, think in a curve. Okay, I'm thinking outside the box, in a curve, around the bend. Uh, it's basically just it's just stereotype. That's that's the thing I'm looking for. Is a stereotype that I'm going to put on something based as you know I'm 50 now. I'm looking back at all this stuff with the objective, you know, I'm an adult. Uh, so not you're not looking at it with the kid that it was actually intended for, or the young adult that that appreciated it more. Uh, you know, and we'll talk more about that down the road. Here I am wandering off again. I, I think more of the explanation of how the distribbles got there is well, Cyrano Sir, Jones literally had piles of them whenever he got teleported over, and not in any cage or anything, and. Well, Cyrano Jones isn't exactly the most responsible of people, so. Mm. Which, uh, to which one of the Tribbles keeps getting into Kirk's, uh, Kirk's chair, which he keeps having to push out despite it getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah, this is, I'd call it a running gag, but it's really more of a sitting gag. (laughs) (laughs) Eventually, this Tribble gets, uh, so large that Kirk decides he's just gonna give up and stands. Which is a good good scene because Spock is just like, aren't you going to sit in your chair, Captain? And Kirk just looks at this giant asteroid and is just like, I think I'll just stand. Yeah. And you can just hear the the defeat in his voice. For a man who does not believe in the no-win scenario, he he lost to a triple. (laughs) Also... Cyrano Jones is kind of an asshole. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's 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 the way the character's been written from the beginning. But I, I just love this scene where he, where it's like, your tribbles are all over the place. Our, my guards can't keep track of all of them. And he's just like, you need better guards, Captain. <laughs> so once the Klingons return, they yet again demand Jones. When Clerk declines, the Klingons prepare to board the Enterprise with boarding plan C. Oh, after they, after, you forgot to mention they hit him with the beam again. Oh, that's right. That's right. Uh Thank you. They hit him with the beam so that they were in stasis again. Spock, meanwhile, suggests emergency defense plan B, having previously suggested uh, throwing tribbles at the Klingons, and he wasn't joking. (laughs) <laughs> now, meanwhile, with all this Plan C and Plan B, somewhere Ed Wood was wishing they used Plan Nine. There you go. <laughs> oh, nicely played. Nice. Nicely played. I, I do want to say I like Kirk's facial expression though. When like he's, it's like we could always throw tribbles at them. And it's like I thought Klingons don't have a sense of humor. We don't. And it just Kirk's got a really good like perplexed expression. <laughs> So plan B is apparently putting the mass of triples right in front of the Klingons. Mm-hmm. Cue the jaunty music. <laughs> because that's what you need. Let's see. The do 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 Yeah, they got the that very comedic music they play for scenes that's always great. It's, it's kind of hysterically out of place. <laughs> but yeah, I, I love that scene because Kirk's like it's like I'd, it's like, are you going to release our ship? And Koloff's like, Kirk, you are monotonous. And Kirk's like, you don't know, do you? And then they make an animation error where Ko- they put Koloff in front of the like the uh, the communication screen, so he's suddenly inside the Enterprise and giant. Briefly. Oh right, yeah. But uh, I, but he's like, <laughs> Kirk's like, you haven't found out yet, have you? And he's like, found out what? 
that we've made you more immobilized than you made us. And he and Koloff's like, I don't know what you're talking about. According to our systems and why he says it's this giant triple just rolls by behind him. The tumbling tumbleweeds. It's just like, Kirk tribbles. <laughs> tribbles. And then, and then Koloth reveals Cyrano Jones's actual crime, which he conveniently left out. Jones stole the glama. Oh, and, and it was a genetic construct from, made by the Klingons. Mm-hmm. So, and they can't re, they can't make another one since that was the only one they had. So Kirk confronts Cyrano Jones about this, and Jones claims it under space salvage laws, but. As I believe Kirk points out, a planet's surface isn't covered by space salvage laws. Actually, that's actually uh, Scotty. Oh, it was Scott. Okay. Yeah, because Scotty's like, but if you have a problem with it, we can beam you over with him. I withdraw my claim. (laughs) (laughs) A very flat response from the normally boisterous Cyrano Jones. Right. (laughs) So. The Enterprise gets released. They decide that the uh, Klingon, new Klingon weapon isn't worth its time because it immobilizes them just as much as it mobilizes whatever ship they're attacking, and it takes too long to repower it. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, uh, Bones discovers that they're not simply giant tribbles, they're colonies. Turns out they were reproducing, they just weren't spawning off. One giant triple is, in fact, multitudes. Oh, dear Lord. Yep, seemingly, uh, to quote uh, Bones, uh, Cerno Jones, uh, what was it, uh, genetic altering is very slipshot, which isn't a surprise, because Cerno Jones doesn't look like someone that'd be doing genetic alterations, to be honest. And we see the Klingons discover this, too, because when Koloth orders one of his men to blast a giant one, it bursts into hundreds. Koloth oh. regrets that order instantly. Yeah. It's like never. It's like any other order, sir. Don't do that. Don't ever. Do that. <laughs> but uh, we we forgot to mention that uh, before he shoots it, he like the the Klingon his Klingon one of his Klingon officers is like the uh, such and such room is full of tribble, and he says it just tribble, not tribbles. But Koloff doesn't catch that because when he opens the door and sees that it's just one giant triple, he, he like tries to get the glomer to attack it, and the glomer just in a hundred percent like Looney Tune cartoon fashion sees that thing and runs for the hills. It's like nope. <laughs> <laughs> it's like that tin-plated peacock of a captain did it to us again. But yeah, Bones decides that. Uh, or Bones reveals that with a certain like injection of medication, he can actually have the Tribbles break up into their individual colonies, and they will actually be safe, non-producing Tribbles at that point. Yeah, neoathylene is what I had written down here. That is correct. And Kirk spots one last biggin, which destabilizes right on top of him. <laughs> one of these days, you'd think I'd learn. And then we end with Scotty's line, but, well, if we're going to have tribbles, at least it's better if our tribbles are small ones. Yeah. It's, for for 
Hanna-Barbera's competitor, it's a better Scooby-Doo ending than a lot of Scooby-Doo cartoons. <laughs> yeah, there you go. That's a good point. That's but instead point. of everybody laughing, Kirk just merely cocks an amused eyebrow at the fourth <laughs> wall. <laughs> I, I do like that it, they, they put an effort to, like, even... Whoever did the uh, the line art for that made an effort to even try to replicate the scene of Kirk being, like, buried in tribbles from the original like trouble with tribbles episode for that scene someday i'll learn and we are going to take a short break for promotional consideration and when we return we will have an episode from season two of this series booyah after these messages we'll be right back on the next penny and james show the wacky races may have featured 11 cars and 23 total characters but let's face it, we all turned in for Penelope Pitstop. <laughs> yeah! Alright, and Dastardly and Motley too! This 1968 Hanna-Barbera series spawned two spin-offs, a large overseas following, and gave us the company's most iconic do-batters. We joined the Daredevil Daffy Drivers en route to the finish line in two weeks. Space, the final frontier. We're going to quote a lot of... Shakespeare, because that makes us look really smart. It's the Star <laughs> Trek way. <laughs> Doth ma- mother know you weareth her drapes? Oh, sorry, wrong, wrong franchise. <laughs> but it actually would work out in, in their favor for this season two episode, How Sharper Than a Serpent's Tooth, written by Russell Bates and David Wise, would actually win the Star Trek franchise its very first Emmy Award. Oh, is that okay? All right. I didn't understand that significance. That's cool. Also, interesting note, according to the commentary on the DVDs, this episode went over budget. And it's kind of easy to see why. This is an ambitious episode. Certainly something the TV series wouldn't have been able to reproduce. I I think it, I I blame the fact that uh, KukoKan is constantly moving <laughs> even if it's the same animation he's he's not still <laughs> that that was where the budget went also interesting note david wise would go on to write a lot of other cartoons he was the head writer and wrote a lot of episodes for the uh, 80s tmnt cartoon that's right and he also would work on uh, he-man transformers jump in the holograms chip and dale's rescue rangers and proof that nobody's perfect, he would be the writer for the uh, pilot for the t- animated adaptation of Battletoads. Also, okay. interesting note, one of the episodes, if I remember right, that he wrote for uh, Transformers was uh, kind of a rather troubles, Tribbles-ish episode, as it was the Crimson episode. The, this, this thing just keeps cropping up. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, the episode starts with uh, the Enterprise uh, investigating a probe that went to Earth, scanned it, and blew up um, when it was realized it was being chased. Mm-hmm. Now, I got a question for you guys. Am I the only one who shifts in his seat com- uncomfortably when he hears of a probe coming from out of space? I'm sure Shatner's used to it by this point. <laughs> I'm so used to it. I mean, that's the thing. is There's so many, like probes coming in you know star trek what which one was it the the whales one star trek four voyage yes. home you know 
and and uh, there's this probe, that probe, V'ger, you know, Star Trek, the motion picture, you had V'ger. Um, so there's always the, you know, the, the, the probe that's going to kill everything and or, or damage something. Um, I think the, my favorite probe episode, oh boy, there's so many, I, I think it's great. There's so much innuendo that we've been skipping past and I appreciate that. Um, <laughs> my favorite one though, that in dealing with a space probe is the Next Generation episode uh, where Picard is, you know, has that alternative life, you know, he lives that whole old man's life out to experience that culture, you know, and the inner light, inner light one. That's, that's the, yeah. that's the title. And I think that was just a fantastic episode and had so much, so much poignancy to it. So yeah, the, the probe trick, I mean, at least it's not like, you know, a South Park episode. <laughs> you know, so yeah. Go in an entirely different direction. Yeah. My, my empathies go out to Dan Carmen. When I when I think of a probe, <laughs> oh no, <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I can't laugh. Today. I, well, no, I should be laughing more because because you know I'm the one who's been busting those kinds of jokes for Dan's uh, benefit. Oh, we'll we'll explain this avoid, later. I guess I should avoid making a joke about how Kirk would be like. I prefer to be the one doing the probing. There you go. So the Enterprise is following the path of this probe's journey, and they encounter a vessel twice their size. And from a distance, this thing honestly looks and glows as if it were a piece of kryptonite. Uh Uh-huh. And it it traps them in a weird space globe force field thing. Right. They can't even shoot their way out of it. Can't shoot their way out of it, can't move uh, or move very much, and Spock's even Spock's just like I cannot explain it. It's like all right. <laughs> Mercifully, no damage or injuries are sustained. But once the ship is ves- is visible, it looks like something Namco would have come up with for a Galaga revival. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, I mean it's that colorful. Yeah, yeah, it's it's very interesting, and and and. There's more I'm going to want to talk about the more as, as you guys reveal more of the episode. Um, but the, the Aztec Central American kind of the textures, the colors, the, the, the iconography, it's all there. You know, they're, they're really, they're beating you over the head with it. But you also have to deal with the fact that this is the 70s where social studies was probably not as prevalent uh, when dealing with this particular type of cultural. So, you know, we're, we're recognizing it now looking back. But at the time, I probably would have been like, oh, okay, I'm buying it. It, it, the the heart was in the right place. Uh, from what I understand, uh, one of the writers, not David Wise, the other guy, um, was uh, according to the commentary, uh, he is he is either Indian or uh, Latin. I don't remember exactly what they said, but he said that he kept trying to tell him. No, no, he he said that writer kept trying to write another like brain slug episode or whatever David Wise called it, and mm-hmm. he's like, no, let's just do one about like culture like aztec culture you know about that stuff and he's like i got it right here pem he's uh kiowa oh yeah which are native to the great plains of north america all right so david wise had to coax him into making an episode about aztec culture and whatnot because he's like you know about this stuff we should focus on that not make another episode about some brain slug or Evil gas. There's enough of that in the original series. <laughs> now, it's at this point I have to point out an animation error alert because when uh, our colorful spaceship attacks the Enterprise with a probe, when the ship is being shaken up, Yuhura is given the wrong skin color. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it happened so fast. You didn't really know. I I think I noticed it, but you know, it was one of those things that it happened so quickly that it's not that. Um. Well, you know, uh, the quote Ernie Hudson. <laughs> yeah. I seen shit that'll make you white. <laughs> so there you go. This is it. <laughs> yeah. But that actually sadly happens a bit in the show. Not as much with Uhura, but it happens a lot with Sulu. Sulu will sometimes be like chalk white in this show. Again, thanks to, uh, yeah, hiring that colorblind painter. Lou, was it really worth the money? <laughs> <laughs> now, this uh, mysterious ship continues its approach and seems to morph into a dragon-like form to the uh, mild surprise of the crew. I say mm -hmm. mild surprise because their reactions are of such limited animation, you, you, they're barely perceptible. <laughs> mm-hmm. But it's the only time we get to see uh, Eric's in, in this episode. He's just right. to respond to that, I think. Yeah, yeah, he gets a couple lines here that here and there, but other than that, that's about it. But Ensign Walking Bear, who is a human of Comanche descent and is standing in for Sulu in this episode, Rex recognizes it as the Aztec Mayan deity uh, Coco Beware. I mean, Kuklakan. <laughs> Coco Beware. <laughs> Let's see. Actually, it's Kukulkan, because that's how he's pronouncing Kukulkan, it. Kukulkan, yeah. And uh, this is where I find things... I'm sorry, go ahead, Pammy, you first. Oh, oh I was just going to say, because that's one of the funny things in this episode, is like, I swear everybody pronounces it different. Right. Especially Shatner. Shatner keeps calling him Kukulkan. Right. Like, yeah, I think I was, uh, I think I was taking after Shatner's pronunciation there. Either that, or I was just rushing to get to the gag. Yeah. Uh -huh. uh, they should have just called it. They should have just called it Quetzalcoatl. Anyways, it would have been an easier name to probably for everybody to get. <laughs> and arguably the same thing, but still. Well, they say that in the end of the episode, anyways. But yeah, I'll tell you what, though, and this is this is where knowledge, experience, and education throws me off because Kukulkan is a very Mexican, Central American kind of a thing, but then Walking Bear is telling me like, and he even says something of, I can't remember what tribe he said he was, but he mentions I I'm Cherokee or Comanche. something. Comanche. Thank you. And it's like, I really wasn't aware that native Americans and central Americans had the same pantheon. Well, so he, that, he actually uh, explained that he uh, studies many, uh, many uh, ancient cultures. Okay. His own. I missed that one. And I appreciate that. Cause that line helps me deal with that. Cause there was like, okay, I understand you try one. Of, it just felt like you're trying to mix it up too much. And it threw me off a little bit. And that's me being over analytical. I'll admit that, but I appreciate you filling that in. So it helps me out. Uh, no problem. Um, I, to be honest, I only remembered that line because I rewatched it again before we did the podcast. So, yeah. Otherwise, I probably would have been on the same boat with you going, what? Mm -hmm. Now, Sonny the Cuckoo Bird is disappointed and angered at mankind and is threatening to destroy them. And after Walking Bear's explanation of uh, what this guy is, uh, he snatches up him, Kirk, McCoy, and Scott. I, I love that when he snatches up. Bones. Bones is like lied before being snatched up. Was like, Ensign, you don't deserve it, but I'm giving you a week of bed rest. Like, yeah. <laughs> wow. Worst bedside, bedside matter ever. <laughs> well, that's your bones, though. Seriously. 
Oh, I, I, which just reminded me of one other episode where he had to give Spock a shot. He's like, Spock, this won't hurt a bit. And Spock's like, an unnecessary comfort as well as being untrue. And he's like, and Bones is like, well, that's the last time I waste my bedside manner on a Vulcan. Uh-huh. Anyways. So Kukulkan has placed the quartet in a massive empty chamber. Sans phasers or communicators only having access to Bones' med kit. At this point, Chekhov's gun has been presented. And I don't mean Ensign Pavel. Yeah, because <laughs> he's not in the show. Chekhov, is, <laughs> Chekhov makes an appearance without being in it. <laughs> Let's see. Uh, good old Chekhov gun. Now, Kukulkan creates an immense city, taking cues from Earth's architectures, or at least that's what we're first led to think, just viewing this from the outside. This is the second holodeck prototype I've seen in this series so far. Mm-hmm. The other one was uh, in the one where the computer gets... Uh, the Practical Joker episode? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Where the Enterprise like has a mental breakdown and starts playing practical jokes on everybody. Right. Yeah, I think Majel Barrett had fun with that episode. <laughs> I, I remember someone was telling me they thought that episode was too cheesy of a concept for Star Trek. And I was like, did you watch the original series? <laughs> I know, seriously, are we talking about the same franchise here at the moment? <laughs> It's like, no, that is in completely in tune for the original series. Uh-huh. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, um, it, it's a giant... Also, geez, Kukulkan is kind of... <laughs> there's so many, like, dragon statues in this, like, village he presented. It's like, mm, mm. Egotistical there a bit, Mr. Kukulkan? Yeah, a little bit. A little, little over the top, you know, a little, little deity thing going on. But it's something that does tie into what's revealed towards the end of the episode, because they're seeing Egyptian-style obelisks, but with clearly Mayan-style symbols. And there's a gateway that resembles something you would be right at home at East Asia. Yep. And Walking Bear, at this point, relates the myth of of, uh, Kukla Fredinali, telling the Mayans to build a city that would also act as an accurate calendar. Once he's once finished, he'd return. But this never happened. Yeah, we forgot about the gods. <gasps> There's a commentary 40, 50 years in the making. Mm. Well, it seems what good old Kuklakon, Kuklakon, Kuku, beware, I don't know, Kuki. Um, uh, Kuki, um, Kuki the chef, um, anyways, was trying to do was he was giving pieces of culture to everyone around the around earth and they were supposed to combine to make all together to make this one city but since they never we all didn't combine together it never happened but what kirk finds out is that the whole uh town that they were supposed to make was actually a communication system that would have sent out a signal to Kuklakon. Mm-hmm. which uh, amazing how he finds that out in what a few minutes yeah, basically. Well, you have a full Star Trek. You have a full Star Trek episode in a twenty-minute span. You gotta, you gotta jump some, jump through some hoops real quick to get to the point. <laughs> now, the point where Kirk realizes this is when he's at the top of the pyramid, which acts as the centerpiece of the city, and mm-hmm. he sees yet another image of Kukulkan, who I'm just going to pronounce straight because I've run out of gags. 
and he realizes the sun is the key to to getting it to work and has the rest of the crew point the heads of the dra- of the dragon statues to the pyramid to channel the sun's energy into making the signal was i the only one thinking oh my god i got to use this in a dnd adventure somewhere along the line <laughs> i was too busy taking notes so yeah <laughs> But don't worry, I won't tell Tanya or anyone else. Uh, of course, if they're listening to this podcast, it's too late. Oh. Note, do not use that in one of my plots to the Pukas. <laughs> <laughs> That's his webcomic. Gotcha, gotcha, okay. Anyways, uh, upon doing that and pointing out what it was, we got a... Uh, Khan appeared before in his... Weirdly fluid, yet often re- but completely reused animation. Mm-hmm. And he's all offended that the Enterprise fired on him, even though he started it. Yeah, you know, that's always amazing to me when people are like, I'm going to have revenge on you f- for defending myself? What the f- <laughs> Come on! <laughs> you know, I never understood that one. Yeah, I, I, I think I can relate with Kurt's. Kirk's Kirk's confusion in this scene because it's it's pretty valid. I mean, he comes in, he's like, "Tell me of your hate. How do you hate me?" And Kirk's like, "Who the fuck are you?" Yeah, no, seriously. <laughs> like, why why are Excuse you coaching me here? What are you? Li- oh yeah, again, watch your goddamn language. Would you over there crying out loud? It's a family fucking show. Anyway, um, so <laughs> <laughs> I, I do that all the time at home. You know, here's a, another tangent. Sorry, tangent alert. My my son, who is eighteen, he's he's, we'll just say prolific, and uh, and he fired one off, and he looked at me, and he goes, "Sorry, Dad." I'm like, "Yeah, watch your fucking language," and he starts laughing, and everybody, you know, <laughs> moving on. So- <laughs> I think I did that to my kid too, much to my ex now ex wife's chagrin. But yeah, I think mine was more like like uh, AJ like said said said, "Oh fuck," and I was just like. And and my ex wife's like, you gonna let her talk like that? And I was like, hey, hey, don't fucking do that. Damn it! Yeah. If Chrissy were here, she'd be filling up the tangent board. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's it's uh, we during one of our meetings early on when we were talking about um, monkey business and how some of the plans we wanted to do for it. Uh, Tanya had suggested a a tangent jar. Where if one of us went off the beaten path, we'd have to put a dollar in the jar. And I'm like, wow, that would be single-handedly funding the entire convention. Oh, God. I alone would probably have $100 in that after two podcasts. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so We'd be able to afford Mark Hamill's guarantee. But anyway. <laughs> we can at least afford the plane ticket to get Pemmy up here. Yeah, I know. There you go. That's a, that's a thing. That's a thing. So, All right. So where do we want to go from here? Well, we're going to go where the crew, where the Enterprise crew goes, which is to Kukulkan's personal zoo. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I thought that was very interesting. Lots of really cool monster des- or alien designs. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Now, these creatures, though they're caged, the, through Kukulkan's technology, they see and feel their natural habitats. They're basically all convinced they're home. Yeah, where they're and- supposed to be. And Kukulkan intended the fantastical city that uh, Kirk and company went through to be that for the humans. But they, according to Kukulkan, became evil. Oh, no. Ah, uh, intelligence, the roots of all evil. <laughs> yeah. 
Now, at this point, Bones points out a Capellan power cat, impossible to tame because it creates intense electrical impulses when touched. Chekhov's gun is hereby loaded. Ta-da. So Kukulkan believes his methods are helpful to a barbaric race and is convinced his probes have not found peaceful people, but warriors. Now the winged beastie believes his dream is ending and the humans are to blame. Mm-hmm. That's some leap of logic. Well, again, 20 minutes span of time and you're, you're in an animated series. You got to kind of get to certain points you can i think they're just basically setting up certain scenes mm-hmm. you know that's well, that's a, that's the thing about star trek is it's always supposed to be teaching you something right that's that's part of its charm and um you can't get to the lesson if you're spending you know half an hour setting up a, on a 20 minute episode i don't know that's just me well that and i think cuckoo con is more or less just feels like a very jaded parent at this point yeah okay cool yeah i was i was thinking a little bit along those lines myself so good good point good point it's like he—he's that—he's that parent that wanted you. He wanted like his kid to be a doctor, and the kid decided to be, like, I don't know, an art artist or something. So yeah. now he's like holding a grudge against him. He's a drummer it. in a rock band. Yep. And, and that—that's what it, that that's actually pretty much what this is. <laughs> <laughs> Cuckoo Khan is disappointed in all of his children. That is the human race for becoming warriors, which he did not want that. Even it, and even though he does not, even though they're trying, they're warriors for peace. He does not believe that because they still have weapons and they attack. And Goku uh, Khan needs to learn a thing called nuance. Nuance. Why would we need nuance? I'm just saying. Well Back on the problem. Enterprise, mm-hmm. Spock through his analysis over the course of this episode, has realized that the force field can only respond to one direction of force at a time, Mm -hmm. and he successfully conspires to shatter it by pushing on it and pulling on it at the same time. Mm -hmm. And as Kirk and company are dodging the assaults of Kukulkan, the Beastie realizes the Enterprise is free. And Bones and Kirk decide that's the time to free the battle cat. I mean, power cat. Oh, wait, sorry. Right. Wrong cartoon. But right animation company. Yep, exactly. I mean, even some of the, like, the scenes of, like, the pose in the scene of the the, uh, compelling power cat hissing reminds Mm -hmm. me of, like, battle cat a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like like James was saying, it's the same house, so... (laughs) True, mm. but uh, the Enterprise attacking the uh, Kuku Khan's ship uh, conveniently disables his ability to control the animals now. Mm-hmm. So, and that now, puts everybody on board in danger. Now they need to find a way to stop the uh, stop that cat so that Kuku Khan can get everything back together again, and they can get back to their ship, which Kirk does by taking. Uh, the hypo from uh, McCoy's uh, med kit. Ah, there we go. Chekhov's gun. Yep. And runs up and slams it at full force into the compelling power cat. Drugs yeah. are bad, kids. <laughs> <laughs> drugs are bad, okay? You shouldn't do drugs because they're bad, so, so don't do them, okay? Okay. <laughs> But you know, meanwhile, I just want to point out that this whole time the Capellan Battle Cat is free, it's 
power cat rather geez now i'm doing it uh, by accident rather than on purpose <laughs> it's constantly emitting electricity all blanca from street fighter 2 like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but with the cat subdued to uh, a kitten-like level of tranquility from the tranquilizer how convenient the kirk summation begins this one on intelligent life and it's and it's the word is escaping me right now it writes to autonomy there we go good deal also, I think it's worth mentioning that uh, we got a scene where, like, Scotty is showing interest in one of the creatures being nice and, you know, not attacking it as Kukulkan would imagine that we probably would at this point. Mm. But yeah, Kirk says that uh, human life is too uh, valuable to be led by the nose. It's like, we've grown up now. We don't need you anymore. Yes. Subtle, subtle. Here we go. I can hear all the Christians now screaming at the top of their lungs. See, they're trying to indoctrinate the children into atheism. Oh my God! You know, it's like it's like no, it's a parent analogy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my God. Yeah, the yeah. the the convincing kids of, of there not being a God wouldn't come until Star Trek Five. <laughs> yeah, I know. Why does God need a starship? I actually like that movie. Most people hate it. <laughs> you know what? Like all Star Trek. I mean, every every iteration of it has episodes that are weak, and but they still have moments. And and, and your your guy DeForest Kelly said it best during an interview: Star Trek is about moments, right? It's about you know showing humanity from different angles at different times in under different situations, and that's when it's at its best is when it's can give you that connection. And Star Trek Five has moments in it. The, the movie itself is weak in the overall, in my opinion, right? But it right. still has moments that, that really kind of bring everything together. So, yeah, you're yeah, right. It's, it's not as bad, but it's, it's not that great. No, nah, it, it's definitely not the better ones, but I still like it. I think I like it because it, it's it focus, It's one of the only movies that really focuses on, like, the uh, Kirk, Bones, and Spock dynamic, which mm-hmm. was big in the TV show, but they didn't do as much in the movie with those mm-hmm. three together. So I think that's one of the reasons why I like Five. But we're Again, off topic. <laughs> and here yeah. I thought it was because you liked the cat girl at the beginning. <laughs> Weirdly, actually, no. I actually thought that was weird for some reason. <laughs> it, it was an unusual design. Uh, yeah. but So Kukulkan reluctantly admits he has nothing more to offer humans and departs peacefully. Which we get a, we, for, we get a slam on humans by a, a subtle slam on humans by Spock. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's like, uh, alien life let did come to Vulcan, but they left much wiser. <laughs> <laughs> I saw that. I caught that one. I was like, "Ooh, subtle sass from Spock today." I see. Very nice. Yeah, that's the one thing that's always bugged me about Vulcans for all their claims for lack of emotion and logic and so on and so on. They can be sassy little bitches. Yeah. <laughs> they they understand they, they understand the subtle art of sarcasm. But subtle and not in your face about it, because that would God, that would be weird. The nineties Vulcan is like <laughs> it's like duh, no. <laughs> 
Yeah, my mind goes back to some of the less well-written incarnations of Tuvok on Voyager, where he could be just outright mean. But oh well. So as as they're contemplating Kukulkan's uh, departure and his disappointment, they quote Act 1, Scene 4 of William Shakespeare's King Lear, How sharper than a serpent's tooth is it to have a thankless child? Indeed, Captain. And they set course for a space station, and the adventure continues. Dun, da, da, da. I, I do want to mention one scene earlier in this. Oh, naturally. Uh, the, uh, there was, in the commentary, they mentioned something that was actually kind of funny. Um, There's one scene that actually wasn't finished in this script and still got in there, which is a scene where where uh, Yohara asks if they should be focusing on trying to get the captain, and Spock is like, Pretty much tells her that uh, t- tells her that the, their focus is to save the Enterprise and for her to go back to do her job. Pretty much, and seemingly originally they wanted uh, Yohara to have like a, like snarky comment back to him, but mm-hmm. they couldn't think of one at the time. And had a had a left in the script is like uh, some line along the lines of whatever you pointed ear jerk or something, and they accidentally left it in the script. They meant to go back and change it, but forgot to. And when they were doing the recording, uh, Nichelle Nichols was like, am I really supposed to say this? And they're like, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. <indeed. laughs> so I, I thought that was a funny story and worth mentioning. <laughs> so almost 50 years later, does this series still boldly go to the final frontier? Or has time eclipsed it um i say if you can get past the animation it's which is for some people is hard um if you can get past the animation it's actually still holds up pretty good the writing is very solid and they don't dumb it down despite it being aired on saturday mornings Mm -hmm. yeah i agree i mean it's like i said at the beginning of of today's chat uh, it really, because you have the consistency of the voice, you know, the, the main actors and the voice actors are essentially the same people. Uh, you know, the directors, the script writers, they're all, it's essentially Star Trek, the original series, but we just sat around in our pajamas and, and did voice acting and animated it from home kind of thing. Uh, so it's, it's got that feel of the original series, which appeals to still many generations to this day. You know, we still have a lot of people thinking of the original series very nostalgically, and positively, and it helps inspire the franchise to keep going to this very day. So yeah, I'm in. I'm good. I'd also say this is my favorite show that Filmation ever produced. So oh, cool. Okay, I I, I like the show a lot. It's uh, of all of the stuff they make, it's it's one of them that I can say is I think is good. I can just straight out say I think is good because most of Filmation shows, even when I like them, I have to admit that I like them usually because of camp or cheesiness. Mm-hmm. Looking that, at you, Shira. <laughs> but that, that's not the case here. Yes, the animation's bad, but I mean, I actually like the writing in it. I like, I feel it's well written. I feel like it's well acted as far as Star Trek goes. <laughs> and, you know, it, I think it's really good. Actually, I also think Shatner's, minus a few line deliveries, a lot of Shatner's acting actually feels better, feels like it works better in voice acting. <laughs> Probably because he's not flowing his body all over the place. Minus that one reading, though. <laughs> yeah, that too. And, you know, of course, my my generation was principally introduced to this show via reruns on, of all places, Nickelodeon. So I, I remember uh, getting to, to watch this 
probably around the same age Chris would have been when he started, when he watched it on Saturday mornings. Mm, give or take, yeah. Sounds yeah. about right. Yeah, I, I, I watched the original Star Trek with my mom a lot because my mom was really into it. Mm-hmm. And my dad wasn't, but my mom loved Star Trek and she got me into the original series and then eventually... Yeah, I saw it. I actually didn't watch it when it was on Nickelodeon. I saw remember seeing advertisements for it, but I didn't watch it. I ended up not watching it until it started rerunning on Sci Fi Channel. It was when I first started watching the uh, Star Trek cartoon, going, "Oh, hey, this is actually I kind of dig this." This is like the original series, except animated. Poorly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And of course, if you want to watch it now, it's available for streaming on Paramount Plus. Yes, it is. Nice. And, of course, DVDs and Blu-rays are available wherever you can find them. Oh, God. You know how funny this is. That brings up a very interesting, like, two, almost three years ago, we were talking about the animated series briefly on on Monkey Business. And Billy, in his infinite wisdom, decided to let me know that he had the animated series on DVD. This was before it came out on streaming. And so he let me borrow it. And I have the whole case. I I put it in my DVD cabinet, and I meant to get to it. And it's been sitting there in the same spot for three years. And now finally I get an opportunity to talk about Star Trek, the animated series on a podcast. And, and I watched it on Paramount. It's, I still haven't opened the DVD case ever. And Billy laughs about that all the time. I gotta, I'm going to walk this over because Billy and I live only like a half a mile away from each other. I'm going to walk this over to his house and say, here, I feel terrible. You may have your stuff back. <laughs> <laughs> we will definitely be having Billy on the show at some point because he's the one person, like I said to you when I was introducing you to everybody, Pem. Mm-hmm. He's the one person who I would put against you in an animated trivia contest and not know who to bet on. Yeah, seriously. I'd probably bet on him, but <laughs> that, that could be my own self-deprecating there. Uh, fair. That's fair. See, uh, if you do decide to watch that DVD box set before you give it back, it is worth mentioning that it does have commentary tracks on some of the episodes. From some of the oh, that might be a good way to do it. That would be fun. Catch some commentary. Who usually does the commentary? Do you know offhand, Pemmy? Uh, I know David Wise is one of the people doing commentary on the uh, Sharper Than a Serpent's Tooth episode. Mm-hmm. That's all I remember because I, I unfortunately don't have the DVD box set anymore. It was one of the things that I had to sell for. I'm not going to get into that. but Right, right, right. But I, I had to sell it for one reason or another. So mm-hmm. I currently have currently have it on my computer for because i while i did uh sell the dvd i did make a backup of it so there you go that's something at least i I technically did pay for it so naturally but but on that note i think it's time to close out this stardate log so on behalf of uh, everybody here i'm james irish i'm pembroke w corgi and i am chris frank and, fo- and until next time, we're headed out to restock the breakfast cereal. Ooh, dig it. See ya. The opinion changed to the sort of hopefully funny cartoon podcast. The preceding podcast is a co-production of the Mighty Monkey Corporation and Artificial Orange Studios. The theme song is written, composed, and performed by Shawn Michael Smith.